The following podcast is a glimpse into the life of Ecclesia Houston. We pray it is a blessing as you seek to follow Jesus, the liberating King, and live in his kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. It's great to see you all. I trust you got a wonderful night's sleep. The best you've had in weeks, probably. Just remember, you did get a whole extra day this year. So you're technically like eight hours ahead of sleep. Not working for you? Yeah, me neither. Uh, It's great to see you, uh, even groggy-eyed. As we open the scriptures together, uh, let me pray for you. Creator God, we're so blessed that you love us and that you have given us life and that we greet this day, Lord, inhabited by your spirit. And we would pray that that spirit that is in Christ Jesus continue to flow through us and to give us meaning and purpose and direction for our days, for our relationships, God, that all that we say and do be because we have had a profound and transformative experience with you. And Lord, we come here this morning with so many different things on our minds, so many different stressors, anxieties, joys. So God, we need you to speak to us. And Lord, we need you to speak to us in ways that we can see, know, and understand. And toward that end, I pray that you pour through me the gift of teaching. That everything said here be from you and because of you and guiding us towards you, God, as we partner with you to bring about your preferred future for all of creation. And we ask it in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So one of the great joys of my life is that I do get to, from time to time, travel around and speak to different groups. And most of those, most of the times, it's Christian churches, Christian conferences, retreats, those kinds of gatherings. Um, But every now and then, I get asked to do something that seems to me to be really out of the blue. Uh, And so I don't know how many times you have to do something that's out of the blue before it's no longer just out of the blue and just kind of something that you do. And most of the time when I go places, um, I've been invited there by someone who I know or I've met somewhere and we have some sort of relationship. But every now and then, I get invited someplace where I don't really know the people at all. And I have found through the last uh, decade or so that one of the oddest places for me to go and speak are college campuses. And the reason college campuses are weird is because colleges will have these speaker series and they'll bring in people and they'll force all the kids who are failing to go. Like you have to go get extra credit. If it's a Christian school, like you get like chapel credits or something like that. So you're dealing with an, you're dealing with an audience of about 40% who don't wanna be there. And so I had this really uh, fun experience about six years ago where I'd been invited to this college campus and they were doing a speaker series. And about a week before the event, I got a phone call from the event planner and they were just giving me the rundown of all the logistics, where I needed to be when, who I needed to connect with, how things were gonna go, what I could expect and all of that. And then at the end of the phone call, he says, one last thing. Someone just got a message of all that I just said. (laughs) What a fun, technologically advanced world we live in. 
Maybe they'll text back and go, what's the rest? Like, wouldn't that be awesome? I said, well, you should have got out of bed this morning. So I was, uh, yeah, he was wrapping up the phone call, telling me everything that I needed to go. And he goes, one last thing before, before we go. He says, you really need to be on your A game because the speaker before you is Daryl Strawberry. Now, if you don't know who Daryl Strawberry is, this is Daryl Strawberry. Daryl Strawberry played Major League Baseball for 17 years. He's in the Mets Hall of Fame. And he's got an incredible story, which is the story that he tells. Daryl Strawberry had a very rough life. He was raised in South Central LA by an abusive and alcohol-addicted father. And his father would come home drunk and beat his mom and Daryl and his brother routinely. And one night when they were old enough, Daryl's dad came home and he started to beat his mom and they had had enough. And so Daryl and his brother, one grabs a frying pan and the other grabs a knife and they fight their dad off of their mom. And Daryl's dad runs to the back of the house and gets a shotgun. And all while this is happening, his mom calls the police, the police arrive and they tell Daryl's dad to leave and never come back, and he does. Well, in a few years, Daryl makes it to the major leagues, but all of that trauma, all of that pain, that just doesn't go away. So just like his father before him, Daryl starts to abuse alcohol, then later amphetamines, and then cocaine. He's traded to the Dodgers, and his life just continues to spiral and spiral out of control until his wife at the time takes him to a conference, a Christian conference in town. And Daryl changes his life, decides he needs to do better, and goes immediately into rehab. But by this time, by the time he gets out of rehab, his baseball career has all but ended, and he's playing independent baseball not associated with any major league team. And one day he gets a phone call from the Mets. They said, we think you can help us. And so Daryl moves back to New York and he helps the Yankees win two of the four World Series that Daryl wins over the course of his career. But after winning one, he goes to the doctor sick and he's diagnosed with colon cancer. And his colon is so overrun with cancer that the doctors are shocked that his colon didn't burst. Well, he immediately goes in for surgery and treatment, and in just six months, he's back on the baseball field. But in all of that surgery and all of that recovery, he becomes addicted to drugs again. And soon, Daryl is arrested for possession and solicitation. And his first wife's already left him, but he decides to go to rehab. And in rehab, he meets a woman named Tracy, who has walked his journey long before him, and she is a Christian, and she helps bring him back to find God and to get well. 
And when Daryl goes around the country talking to groups, this is the story that he tells when he speaks to them. And this is the guy that I was supposed to speak after at this college. Like, what was I supposed to say exactly after that? Sean Palmer won the Fishers of Men Award at Vacation Bible School <laughs> at the Gaucher Church of Christ when he was in third grade, which his mom still prominently displays on the piano in her home. <laughs> like, have you ever felt like you just wish you had? a more dramatic story, a more demonstrable story? Is there some place in you, maybe the people that you know, that really believes that all of this, all of this God stuff, all of this faith stuff that people talk about, that would be so much easier if there were some big demonstrable change, some story that everybody could see and believe. Because the truth, the truth of the way that we walk through the world is that we really down deep believe that seeing is what? Believing. And if we could just see it, then that would make all of this easier. Well, in the book of John, John tells us a story that's all about seeing. And not only is it about seeing, it's about the way we see the world. And not only is it about the way we see the world, it's about the way we choose to see the world and the ways we choose not to see what is available to be seen in the world. And this whole time in the book of John, Jesus has been traveling back and forth to Judea and Bethlehem, Judea and Bethlehem. And whenever he gets close to Jerusalem, like things get a little bit hairy because that's where all the Pharisees are hanging out. And one day when Jesus is traveling, this is what happens. While walking along the road, Jesus saw a man who was blind since birth. Teacher, who sinned? Who is responsible for this man's blindness? Did he commit sins that merited this punishment? If not his sins, is it the sins of his parents? And so if you've been around the Gospel of John, if you've read this story before, you might have heard, you might have read that in the ancient world that there was a correlation between suffering and sin and that if you suffered, especially if you were born with a birth defect, you were born lame, if you were born blind, then the reason that that happened is because your parents sinned or because you sinned. And like, I don't know how that happens in utero, but that was what people believed. And what it goes back to is this little tread in Deuteronomy 5, where it says the sins of the father are visited on the son to the generations, generations, like down to the eighth, 10th generation. But that really doesn't mean what a lot of times we think it means. Um, what that means is how many of you have felt like you have had to do something suffer something, recover from something because of what your parents did or what your grandparents did. Like you were born into a family that was just broke. Your father, your mother was an alcoholic and that affected you. Your grandfather abused your mother. That's not a curse. That's just life. That, that we are always dealing with things that happened 
up the line from us. And that's the way life works, that we're not that isolated, that you come into the world as a blank slate, separate and apart from all the other people who make up you. But they believed that if you suffered, if a child suffered, it was because their parents sinned. And I know we're in the 21st century now, and we think that we're very sophisticated and smart. We would never look at someone, we would never look at a child who is suffering and say, well, that's your parents' fault. But you ever caught yourself saying, well, have you ever met her mom, her dad? What could you expect? Their parents shouldn't have brought them here. Are we so different that we think that people don't suffer because it's their fault? In the ancient world, if you were suffering, folks weren't concerned about your suffering. They were concerned with who to blame. You ever caught yourself seeing suffering? And you're way less concerned about suffering. You just want to know who's to blame. Because somewhere inside of us, we suspect that if we can just get down to who's to blame, then we don't have to care about the suffering. And Jesus says, neither. Neither this man or his parents. Which sounds really simple to us, but was earth-shattering in the first century. And what we need to see like really early on in this story is what if Jesus is changing the categories about the way we think? Because all of us, we inherited a framework of thinking, either by where we were born, when we were born, who we were born to, that everything that we think, someone taught us or we saw somewhere. And what if the categories are the wrong categories? The disciples see a man who is suffering and they say, we know where this goes. It's either in the parents' fault box or in the man's fault box. And Jesus says, neither. Your categories don't work. And so frequently when we come up against an impasse in our thinking or in our understanding, so many times when we have friction with other people, it's not because their thinking is bad or our thinking is bad. It's because we've got the wrong categories. Then Jesus says his blindness cannot be explained or traced to any particular person's sins. You got the wrong categories. He's blind so the deeds of God may be put on display. This is the deeds of God. Now, I never liked this passage. Because in some of your translations, it says something like, this man was born blind so that God's glory could be revealed. And I always wanted to know, like, what kind of God is it that needs someone else to suffer 
so that their glory can be revealed. And like, is that a God worth following? And the way to better understand this is this man's blindness. Like it's not in the categories that you think it should be in. This man's blindness, his blindness is God's responsibility. And the reason that I don't like that, maybe the reason that you push back against that, is because I really don't like pain for you. But I really, really, really don't like pain for me. And it is hard for us to believe that pain can serve a purpose. And that God is okay with our pain if it serves a purpose. And that doesn't make God a moral monster because I'm okay, you're okay with Jesus's pain serving a purpose. Jesus turns his disciples. He says, while it is daytime, we must do the works of the one who sent me But when the sun sets and night falls, this work is impossible. Whenever I am in the world, I am the light of the world. After he said these things, he spat on the ground and mixed saliva and dirt to form mud, which he smeared across the blind man's eyes. Go wash yourself in the pool of Siloam. Now, there is no reason at all for Jesus to do all of this, like spitting in the dirt, making mud. I don't know why Jesus does all of this, but he does. He spits in the dirt, makes mud because Jesus has zero concerns about coronavirus. And he tells the man to go to the pool of Siloam, which was this place where the Jews went for a ritual cleansing. And then the man does the only thing that Jesus, that the scriptures ever really ask us to do. He walks by faith and not by sight. John goes on to tell us, he says, Siloam means sent. And its name reminded us that this healing was sent by God. The man went, washed, and returned to Jesus, his eyes now alive with sight. Then neighbors and others who knew him were confused to see a man so closely resembling the blind beggar running about. Isn't this the man we see every day sitting and begging in the streets? This is the same man. And still others say, this cannot be him, but this fellow bears an uncanny resemblance to the blind man. Man says, I am the same man. It's me. The townspeople respond, how have your lifeless eyes been opened? They can't believe what they're seeing. And the reason they can't believe what they're seeing is that they they never expected to see this. He resembles the man. He kind of looks like the man. And the reason they respond this way is because they had no place, they had no space for something to happen that they hadn't ever seen before. And isn't that the trap we fall into? 
mentally, emotionally, in relationships, that our expectation is that everything will be as it has always been. And when something happens that doesn't meet our expectations, well, that can't be what it obviously is. John goes on with the story. Man says, I, I'm, a man named Jesus approached me and made mud from the ground and applied it to my eyes. He then said to me, go, wash yourself in the pool of Siloam. I went and washed, and suddenly I could see. The townspeople said, where is the man who healed you? The blind man says, I don't know. I didn't see him. (laughs) This man doesn't know anything about Jesus, doesn't know anything that Jesus has said or taught any other people that he's healed. He just said, like, I met this dude. He did this and told me to go wash, and I just did it. Like, there's no ramp up in the story. There's no teaching to the blind man. The blind man doesn't seek out Jesus. It just happens along the way, which is the way that most of life actually happens, like while you're on your way to something else. And he just does it. And they are shocked. John tells us the townspeople brought the formerly blind beggar to appear before the Pharisees the same day. Because when you got healed, when maybe you had leprosy, whenever you were going to be integrated back into the community, you had to go get that checked out with the priests, with the Pharisees, to make sure that everything was okay. The same day Jesus healed him, which happened to be the Sabbath. Well, there goes Jesus again, doing unexpected things when he shouldn't be doing them at all. Jesus never learns. And on the Sabbath, like he couldn't do something like knead bread. So if you spit in the mud and mix it, that's like kneading bread. So Jesus does this thing, this healing, where he could have healed this man by touching him or speaking a word or a thousand other different ways. Jesus spits in the mud just to poke the eye of the Pharisees. John goes on. The Pharisees began questioning him, looking for some explanation for how he could now see. He smeared mud on my eyes, and I washed. Now I see. Some Pharisees say, God can't possibly be behind this man because he is breaking the rules of the Sabbath. Now, here's where John gets us. Because Jesus isn't actually breaking the rules of the Sabbath. He's breaking their version of the rules of the Sabbath. Their interpretation of the rules. And before we're too hard on the Pharisees, which is super easy to do, I have never met a person in my life who didn't believe that some things were right and wrong and there, would, there were some should-bes and shouldn't-bes and there were some oughts and ought not. And when Jesus comes along, 
one of the things that he is signaling to us is maybe the work of God doesn't happen in your categories. That God's not restricted by what you think should happen and when it should happen or who it should happen to or for. What do you do when God starts to bless all the people that you blame? When God starts releasing his power on all the people that you thought, those are just sinners. And whatever happens to them, that's their own fault. The Pharisees aren't just concerned about what happens. They're also concerned about who does it. This is what John tells us next in verse 16. He says, how can such a law-breaking scoundrel do something like this? The Pharisees were at odds with each other about Jesus and could not agree whether his power came from God or the devil. So here's a temptation that we face. That when we prioritize our own perspective, our own experience, our own politics, our own history, when we prioritize that, everybody who doesn't fit into that has to be the devil. They have to be evil because it can't be you. It can't be me. Like it can't be us who is wrong about politics. It can't be us who sees the world askew. It can't be us who are misinformed because we're right and we're good people. And if there are people who disagree with us and they persist in disagreeing with us, if they persist in their wrongness, only evil people are wrong on purpose. So if I'm on God's side, God's on my side, And if you're not on my side, you must be the devil. John goes on. What do you say about this man? About the fact he opened your eyes so that you could see? I have no doubt this man is a prophet. Some of the Jews suspected the whole situation was a charade, that this man was never blind, So they summon the man's parents to testify about his condition, which is very much like going to a Christian school. Whenever you get in trouble, they just call your parents. And so this is what happens. Is this man your son? Do you testify that he has been blind from birth? How, therefore, does he now see? The parents say, we we can tell you this much. He is our son, and he was born blind. But his new sight is a complete mystery to us. We do not know the man who opened his eyes. Why don't you ask our son? He is old enough to speak for himself. He's not a child. He can speak for himself. And so that's what they do. The man's parents were a bit evasive because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders. It had been rumored 
that anyone who spoke of Jesus as the anointed one would be expelled from the synagogue. And this may be my favorite part of the story because where it says it had been rumored, I got better translations, maybe most of your translations will say this, that it had already been decided. That's how they see the world. It doesn't matter what the evidence is. It doesn't matter what's obvious and right before you. They had already decided. So when I was in ninth grade, um, I was in honors English, advanced English in my high school. And so there was a really great teacher there. She taught me a lot. Her name was Beverly Cole. I thank her to this day for making me a reader. Her class was still, to this day, after college, after graduate school, one of the hardest classes I ever took. And she only taught a very small number of students, but these were the two categories of students. You had to be honors level, advanced English, or remedial English, like kids who really struggled. And so I have an older brother, and he has a lot of gifts, but academics just was not one of them. And so three years before I was in ninth grade, he was in ninth grade, and he had Beverly Cole. And he really struggled in her class, barely made it out in the 10th grade. And then she had me three years later. And our first test in Honors English was over the play Hamlet. And these tests were massive. It took two days to take these tests. There were a thousand quotes that you had to remember, to whom, by whom, for whom, about. It was crazy. It was insane. And so she also had a lot of bonus points on those tests. And this very first test in ninth grade in Honors English over Hamlet, I got 122 because <laughs> I nailed those extra credits. And I'm, I'm still living off that one. And so after she gave back the test, I was walking out of the classroom, and she's standing by the door, leaning up against it, and she stops me, and she says, um, did you read Hamlet? Yeah. You're Richard Palmer's brother? <laughs> yeah. She goes, hmm. Okay. She had already decided. Do you know people who've already decided? You work with them, and it seems like they want to collaborate. It seems like they're interested in input, but they've already decided. They've already decided who gets the bonus, who gets the promotion. They've decided who they're going to listen to. You ever know someone who looks at an election eight months away, and it doesn't matter what the facts are, they've already decided. It doesn't matter what the case on the ground is, what is there to be seen, they've already decided. Have you ever seen parents with children? And this is my smart kid, and this is my athletic kid, and this is the kid who's not going to, and this is the kid who's always going to, and this is the, they've already, 
they've already decided. It's easy to inhabit a way of being in the world where you've already decided. And what you focus on determines what you miss. The story goes on. So they deferred the thorny question to their son, and the Pharisees called on him a second time. Give God the credit, they say, which is to say not Jesus, God, because they are not thinking those are the same thing. He's the one who healed you. All glory belongs to God. We are persuaded this man you speak of is a sinner who defies God. The man says, if this man is a sinner, I don't know. Which may be one of my favorite lines in the entire Bible because it took me a long time in my life to get to a place that when I was asked a question that I was okay just saying, I don't know. And I can say that I don't know because now I know I don't know everything, I don't see everything, and I don't see the way other people see things. And the hurdle for many of us, for many people that you know, is the inability to simply say, I don't know, which causes a great deal of stress for when that coworker, when that family member comes up to you and they've got questions about God or they've got faith and you feel like you need to know everything to say anything. And this is the good news of the story is that you don't have to know everything to know something. Because guess what? You don't know everything about anything. And if you don't believe me, find someone who is an expert in their field and ask them a really difficult, thorny question that's multi-layered about it. And no matter what they say, if they are really an expert, by the end of it, they'll say something like, well, I don't really know. My wife comes to me with theological questions all the time, and I say, I don't know, which she thinks is a drastic waste of $100,000 of theological education. <laughs> Only, only idiots and amateurs know everything. He says, I'm not qualified to say. I only know one thing. I was blind, and now I see. All I can tell you is what I see. This was my experience. And what happens in this story is that Jesus finds a blind man to reveal to the rest of us that we cannot see. That we have all of these hurdles to keep us from seeing who God is and what Jesus is doing in the world. But what we all know is that we share a story that all of us were once blind, but now we see. From Daryl Strawberry to me, that God is unfolding his glory in the world and the invitation for us is to be people who see, who trust God to be God and to dismantle the categories 
that we have created that tell God what God cannot do. And so for you, in your relationships, in your work, in your schools, the invitation of Jesus is to be the kind of person who can see what is available to be seen. And that's all you have to know. Because in the end, we are only being asked to do one thing. To walk by faith and not by sight. Ecclesia, let me pray for you. God, could you give us sight to see and faith when we do not? To trust wholly and completely in who you are and what you're up to in the world. That you would give us wisdom and experiences, but that you would not trap us in our experiences. God, we don't want to be the people for whom the last move of God is the best move of God, but those who await the next move of God. And we ask all of this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information, please visit our website at www.ecclesiahouston.org.